Well, this morning, my, my task as we look at the Word of God is to share um, my heart when it comes to the, the heart for the world. Now, why is it that we, a local church here located in Osterville, Cape Cod, Massachusetts, should care about the concerns of the world? Now, we've talked a lot about our local concerns. We've talked about regional concerns. We've looked at the dynamics of the Northeast. We've looked at the dynamics here in Barnstable and Yarmouth. Why should we look beyond our shores? Why should we care about more than just what's going on in our backyard? Well, I'm couching this thought in our series, Housekeeping. Remember, the big idea of this series is just that strong houses need good housekeeping, right? Every Saturday or whenever you do your housekeeping, you wake up, there's a lot of responsibilities to do. And we don't necessarily like all of those responsibilities, but I promise you this, if you don't apply the housekeeping principles, no one's going to want to live in that house. It turns into a disaster quickly. Let my kids alone for like 10 minutes and it can become that so we're talking about four principles or functions of a local church, that's the analogy, that if churches practice these things, those churches will be strong. The first is, of course, that the church develops a culture of servanthood. We want to be like Jesus. Jesus came to us as a servant. If we're going to be like him in any way, we need to look like him in this way. Secondly, the church invests in fellowship. That's one of the core foundations of what it means to be a part of the church. It is the gathering of people, not a building. No, it's the people. Today, we're looking at the church becoming a launch pad. And then after missions conference, the church values stewardship. Rick Warren said this, you measure a church's strength not by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. And if the church is going to be like the home in any way, the church must be like the home in this way. Uh, when you create a home, particularly if you're raising children in a home, one of the great purposes of that home is to raise those children up into independence. You want to launch them. After all, no household wants a 50-year-old child living in that household. So we start the process pretty early. We ask the child almost immediately, almost from day one, what do you want to be when you grow up? You've said that to your child, I'm sure. Or maybe you heard it as a child. And the kids get pretty creative, don't they? One of my children, I'm not going to name any names, but they used to say to me, Daddy... When I grow up, I want to be a coal mining preacher. <laughs> I thought, boy, that is a really specific <laughs> vocation pathway. I like that. I want to suggest that just like the home has the distinct purpose of launching, so does the church. It's pretty clear in the Bible. We're called to raise up disciples. Disciples who fulfill the Great Commission. Now, if we're asking that of our children, don't you think the church should be asking the same sort of question? So let me ask it of you. What do you want to be 
when you grow up in Jesus. Every believer, every person in this room, every person in every church across North America, across the world, needs to be asking that question because all of us have a part. We have a function. We have a purpose to fulfill in the Great Commission. Like I said earlier, that's my heart, but really, my heart doesn't matter that much. No, I'm more interested in understanding God's heart because my heart only matters as much as it lines up with God's heart. My heart can sometimes get distracted. It can get focused upon the wrong things, but God's heart is consistent, and we'll see that in the Bible this morning. We're going to be looking at two primary texts. We're going to be looking at the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. We'll do a quick little snapshot of a survey of the Bible, and we'll see that God's heart has always been for the nations, and then we'll take a look at Jesus's Great Commission in Acts chapter 1. So we're looking at Genesis 10. Now, maybe the first time you started reading through the Bible, if you've ever read through the Bible, you opened up the Bible and you started with the book of Genesis and you said to yourself, I'm reading this thing from cover to cover. And quickly in Genesis, you hit what is called the genealogies. A list of names, clunky, odd hard to pronounce. You hit the first section, you're like, this is God's word. I need to do due diligence. I need to read every name. You hit the second one. You started doing this to get through it a little more quickly. Well, Genesis chapter 10 is one of these. It's called the table of nations. And I'm not going to read it all for you this morning, but we'll look at the first verse in the last verse, to just give us a little context of what this is about. In verse 1, I believe Moses wrote Genesis. Moses writes, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons who were born to them after the flood. Now let's go to the last verse. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So what's he telling us? Why is this in the book of Genesis? Well, Moses is likely writing later in his life. And he's trying to provide the nation of Israel with a a written map as they're approaching this promised land. They're about to enter into a territory and they need to understand the nations that surround them. You can think of it like the game of risk. Has anyone played the game of risk? You know, the game where you can lie, cheat, steal, manipulate. It's all fair game. And by the way, happens to be my favorite game in the world. So, if you've played the game, you know how it begins. Players take their pieces, they pick their color, and they start individual by individual placing pieces and selecting countries. You go around until every country is selected and every piece is put into the map. What happens from there? Well, you roll the dice and then friendships start being ruined, right? 
But before that happens, before the stages, before the, the action commences, people look at the stage that's set. You think to yourself, wow, she's got a lot of pieces in Asia. I think she's going to plot something over there. Or maybe internally you're thinking, oh, I'm going to do this, that, and the other to make sure that I take North America. So you can kind of think of Genesis 10 like that. Israel's coming into the promised land, and this is the layout of the map as they enter. But beyond the the immediate context here, I also want to suggest that Genesis 10 is teaching us something about the mind in the heart of God. You see, in Genesis, the nations have been created because Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, they've turned away from God, they've sought to do their own thing, and Genesis 10 is revealing to us that there's this scattering that's happened. And I believe that this is God's way of highlighting that despite the movement of the nations and the sinful turning away of the nations and the lostness of the nations, that God knows where each nation is. They're on his mind. They're on his heart. And we're going to see that he's intent on reaching them. So we fast forward the story and we get that confirmed. Genesis 12, 3, the calling of Abraham happens. And God says this to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, what families is God talking about? Well, the context would indicate that he's talking about the families that he has been painstakingly tracking in Genesis chapter 10. In fact, he lists in Genesis 10, 70 nations. Now, that is a Hebrew literary device. It's meant to give you a comprehensive picture. It's meant to bring into the mind's eye the whole. So God is speaking in Genesis 10 of every people, every culture, every race, every ethnicity, every tribe. And that number takes on significance as the story of the Bible moves forward. First of all, we read that Abraham has 70 offspring. So what does that mean? Well, the nation of Israel that is growing up is like a microcosm of the nations. And as you read the story of the Old Testament, Israel's purpose is actually to reach the nations. In the Psalms, the psalmist writes, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. That was Israel's purpose. Do they fulfill that purpose in the Old Testament? No, it's kind of like a a crash and burn situation. We need a Messiah. We need an anointed one to come and, and pull us out of our sinful ways and our sinful habits. And so Jesus comes along And notice in Jesus' ministry that we're told that Jesus sends out, get it, 70 disciples. Now, initially, these 70 disciples have a local mission. Go and tell the nation of Israel about the kingdom of God, about the Messiah. 
but he greatly expands that mission in the Great Commission. And I want you to just see how the Bible ends. We're looking at the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9. We're going to see where this is all heading. The Apostle John sees an explosive worship scene where it says that a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So I hope you're seeing, as we do this very brief survey, that God's heart has always been for the nations. It is in the book of beginnings, almost from the start when the nations are formed. It is all the way through to the book of Revelations. It is the bookends of the Bible. It's the thread that continues through the Bible. What you need to understand about God is that God is a missionary God. He's a seeking God. And he's not a missionary God to just a couple of selective people. But every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people is on the heart of God. In fact, missiologists suggest that we need to think differently when it comes to our concept of the nations. When we think of the term nation, I think of a nation state. So you go on Google, you do a quick search, you come to the realization that there's 195 countries in the world. I bring my thought process into that and say, well, if I'm going to have a heart for the nations, then basically I need to ensure that there are 195 missionaries in 195 countries, right? But that's not what the Bible means as it talks about the nations. In the New Testament, nations is the Greek word ethne. Now, that word, properly translated, means people groups. So these are people with their own heart language and their own distinct culture. You can go in, for example, I, I've been to the nation of India, and you can go into India and you can travel, say, like 10 or 15 miles, and you can tr uh, basically traverse from one ethne to another ethne that don't share the same language. They don't read the same language. They don't necessarily hold to all the same cultural customs. These missiologists tell us that there are presently 11,489 people groups in the world. Now of them, 6,832 by best reckoning are less than 2% Christian. And of that number, 3,264 have no Christian witness. They've never heard about Jesus. They have no idea what the Bible is. They have no idea of how to come into a right relationship with the God who created them. So what is God's plan for that 3,264 people groups? Well, his plan's always been the same plan. God's plan from the start, you notice, with the raising up of Abraham, is God's people are meant to reach the ethne or the nations. And right now, God's people happen to be God's church. It's you and me. So we're God's 
plan A, and he does not have a plan B. So if I'm going to adopt the heart of God, then I need to take seriously what Oswald Chambers said in his classic devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. He says this, If my heart is right with God, every human being is my neighbor. Think about that concept of neighbor for a minute. I mean, for me, my definition of neighbor is the people who are around me that I happen to like, right? Uh, If someone lives down the road and I don't particularly care for them, I don't really think of them as my neighbor. I like the neighbors that I wave at and they wave back at me and, and there's a lot of smiles and good feelings. Well, Jesus dismantles that concept in the parable of the Good Samaritan, doesn't he? Uh, One of the righteous religious figures says, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus uses like a stereotypical Samaritan who they hated, and he says, that's your neighbor. You have to love everyone around you, even the people you don't like. But here's the thing. I could still walk away from the Good Samaritan and believe that my neighbors are still local to me. It's all the people in the town of Barnstable. Yeah, like the guy down the road that parties too much, and I don't like him. I still got to love him. But my, my focus ends there. So he picks up our heads, and he enlarges our worldview in his great commission. In Acts 1.6, the disciples, of course, they're still kind of hyper-local at this point, they say to Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of heaven? Hyper-local. They're fixated on nationalistic concerns. And you can understand why. Uh, These disciples have grown up in a world where Rome has always been their oppressor. In the Bible, their scriptures, the Old Testament prophets, promised that God would one day come and establish a kingdom where they would no longer be oppressed. And we, of course, we can get stuck on local concerns, can't we? Uh, We can think that unless something's done this next election cycle, boy, things are going to just, they're just going to go down the toilet in our nation. We can get so kind of fixed and stuck on those concerns. Does it mean that I can't be locally relevant? Of course I can. But that shouldn't be the exclusive focus. So what does Jesus say in verse 7? He says to them, It is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed of his own authority. Now notice something important. He doesn't reject their premise. Like He doesn't say, why are you asking for this coming kingdom? That's not happening. He he doesn't reject that outright. He's just changing the focus. His point is this. You can't let, whether it's future-oriented prophecy or immediate local concerns that you're dealing with, become all-consuming. That creates mission drift. Our mission, according to verse 8, is to tell every people group around the world about Jesus. So if I allow the future-oriented things or the hyper-local things to distract me, then I'm not going to be presently good for God's call for my life. Listen to Jesus in verse 8. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. One of the foremost scholars on Acts, Daryl Bach, says this, the priority for the church until Jesus returns, a mission of which the community must never lose sight, is to witness to the end of the earth. The church exists in major part to extend the apostolic witness everywhere. In fact, listen closely to this last sentence. The church does not have a mission. It is to be missional. It is a mission. Have you ever thought of yourself in that way? Have you ever thought when you're coming Sunday after Sunday to church, faithfully pursuing the things of God, that you are actively participating in the mission? You are being the mission as you do those things. Let me ask you the question again that we began with. What do you want to be when you grow up in Jesus? What do you want to be? Anything less than understanding God's heart than being mobilized into this mission that Jesus is calling us to be. Well, that's just a loss of focus. It's a state of complacency. It's like being that 50-year-old child living at home. So how do we launch? Well, when you hear something like, what do you want to be when you grow up in Jesus, it can be a very open-ended question, can't it? I mean, oh, Rob's talking about these people groups all over the world. How am I supposed to find my way into that? That sounds really challenging. Well, I, I, I believe that it has to begin with a state of mind. Now, Harry wrote a, a really good discipleship tool that we use around the church. It's called the 10 Steps. And Basically, the 10 steps are 10 principles that you can follow to help you grow up in Jesus. And I love how his 10 steps culminates. It culminates into this principle. Every Christian should be a world Christian. Every Christian should be a world Christian. Now, what is that? Well, the heartbeat behind being a world Christian was stated by Dr. Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, he said this, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. What breaks God's heart? The nations. The nations that are lost. He says his heart in the scriptures, he says that he doesn't want any to perish, but that all should come into repentance. That's the kind of thing that breaks the heart of God. Now listen, being a world Christian doesn't make you any better than anyone else. It's just a reality that by the grace of God, you've discovered your purpose in life. Isn't that what you want for your children and the people you love? You want them to discover why they were made, what they were intended to do. And, and this is why you were made in Christ, to become a world Christian. 
you discover that there's a gap between this lost humanity and this holy God. You come to the realization that you need to believe and think and plan and give and pray and act in line with the heart of Jesus. In fact, you're no longer even asking the question, what do I want to be when I grow up in Jesus? But what does Jesus want me to grow up to be? Now, some world Christians grow up to become missionaries. They actually cross human barriers, cultural barriers, language barriers, political barriers to bring the gospel to those who have no other way of hearing it. Paul said this in Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And of course, we have partnerships with these beautiful feet. We call them our missionaries that we support. I'm not going to name them all, but you can think of the Columbines in Senegal or the mission in Togo with the Aldermans and the Freemans, Good News Chaplains, Corey and Becky Coogan. Beautiful feet that have crossed cultural barriers. Third John 8 tells us this, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. See, my heart with Missions Conference, and one reason I want this to be the part of the tide of OBC, you know, tide means you keep coming back to something, right? You keep revisiting it. We have some tides here. We, we do 21 days of prayer together, missional May, and, and hopefully, God willing, Missions Conference. I'm praying that that tide will raise up more beautiful feet in our midst. People who feel called to go, who develop a heart in line with God's heart. Now, let's just be honest. Not everyone can go. If all of us went, well, I'd have a pretty lonely Sunday at some point. I would just be talking to the chairs, and maybe I wouldn't even be here because I would go. Then you would have no home base to be a launch pad, right? So you have to maintain a strong home base in order to launch Christians into the world. But it doesn't mean that staying doesn't carry its own set of responsibilities. Going's difficult, but staying has responsibility associated. You have to sacrificially love the people who go. Some of that involves financial support. Some of that involves personal support, like writing letters and knowing the names of children and, and caring about their lives. Some of it involves facilitating training opportunities and, and, and sometimes maybe even going to missionaries and visiting with them. That's what good support and staying looks like in the church. Harry said this, World Christians are day-to-day -day disciples for whom Christ's global cause has become the integrating, overriding priority for all that life is for them. World Christians are Christians whose life direction have been solidly transformed by a world vision. And having caught a vision, 
Old Christians want to keep that vision and obey it unhesitantly. I want to leave you with three steps. I'm praying this morning that you are sensing that God is calling you to be a world Christian if you're not already one. And the three steps are simple. The first step is you have to catch the vision. And the only way to catch God's vision for the world is to show up to things like missions conferences. To hear the word of God explained and applied so that you see clearly that God loves the world and he wants you to be a part of it. The second step is to keep the vision. You can come to a weekend like a missions conference and you can get all whipped up and passionate and excited, but you know what they say about vision? Vision is leaky. Over time, you can lose the force of the vision. So if you're waiting for Sunday mornings where the world is talked about in church, it's likely that you're going to get hyper-local again. You've got to keep thinking about the world, praying about the world, supporting the people who go. The third step is to obey the vision. What if God is putting it on your heart to go? At some point, you can't just hear something. You can't just get really excited about something. You have to put feet to it. Or what if he's just calling you to be a world Christian? Well, how would God have you better support the mission of the world? I can't answer all of those questions for you individually, but I can say this. As a church, we do a lot of that together. And uh, of course, caring about the missionaries that we're already supporting here and loving here is a big part of obeying. So listen, as I close this down, I just want to leave you with this final thought. I hope to see you Friday. I hope to see you at Missions Conference. And be praying with me that God will do something extraordinary this weekend as we hear his heart for the world. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the clarity of your word. I thank you that from the beginning, Genesis onward, we see that you are a God who loves the nations. Lord, you, you've raised up a people, a holy people, to follow you, to know you. But that's not just the end in of itself, Lord. Part of the purpose is to reach those who don't know you. Lord, in our own mission statement, we talk about worship as being the foundation of your mission. It's, it's making your name uh, known and, and making much of your glory. And there's so many people around the world that don't know your glorious name, and we want them to, Lord, because their life found in you will be fulfilled. So, Lord, Raise up more beautiful feet here at Osterville. We pray in your name.